life. And if I have to examine a thread that has pulled through the whole thing, it's really been around building community. And so much of that, to be honest, was a direct response to my inability to create connection early on in my life. In 2018, Jeff founded Commune Media, an online learning platform for personal and societal well-being. As CEO and chairman, Jeff focuses on business development and talent relationships. Jeff also hosts the Commune Podcast, interviewing a wide variety of luminaries from Deepak Chopra and Marion Williamson to Brendan Bouchard and Russell Brand. Jeff pens a weekly essay exploring spirituality, culture, and politics that is distributed to over 1 million people. Jeff is also the creator of Wanderlust, a global series of wellness events. In 2016, he was selected by Oprah Winfrey to be a part of the Super Soul 100 as one of the nation's leading entrepreneurs. In 1995, Jeff married his college sweetheart, Skylar Grant. They live in Los Angeles and have three daughters. All right, we're here today in the Gravity Podcast with my friend Jeff Krasno. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm excited to dive in and have you share your full journey with our listeners. Yeah, thanks, Brett. I've really been looking forward to this. I always enjoy speaking with you. We've had many, I think, really gratifying conversations, but never one with a red button. So yeah, excited to have one of those too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, one of the fun things about this for me is that although, you know, I have had many conversations with our guests before the red button, but oftentimes we don't really get a chance to share our full life journey with each other. You know, maybe we kind of pick up based on where we are right now or a project we're working on or something we have in common today. So I'm always intrigued, and our format really has been to share with the listener the full journey. So maybe you can kind of wind all the way back and tell me a little bit about your earliest memories of childhood, your family dynamics, et cetera. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so I'm 50, uh, which would put me, um, put my birthday in 1970. Uh, I was a forceps baby born on Thanksgiving Day, obviously before cell phones and and internet. So my parents' absence at the Thanksgiving dinner was conspicuous. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, But I showed up. And and this was really from day one, the beginning of, a, of an extremely peripatetic youth. Uh, my father was a Fulbright professor and he was finishing at Stanford when I was... He was getting his PhD at Stanford when I was born. So I was born in Chicago, kind of my whole family's been from Chicago, but we quickly moved to Palo Alto and then really began a journey living around the world. We lived in the Lake District of uh, Northern England. We moved to Spain uh, to a wonderful, picturesque town called Santiago de Compostela and then, um, and then moved to Brazil. I spent you know, the years of four, five, and six uh, in Rio moving around to multifarious, strange locations. I lived in one notable place called Jacarepaguá, which means alligator water, if I dust off my Portuguese. And that was an apt name, 
given where we lived, which was uh, 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 an immersion into nature at a very, very young age, poisonous snakes and vampire bats. Uh, and, uh, and I actually do have some of my earliest memories from living in Jacarepaguá. So there was a gen- there was a main house that was separated from the bedrooms and the nighttime sort of sprint from the main house to my bedroom was like running the gauntlet to avoid all of the predators <laughs> that were lurking both imaginary and real um in in the crevices uh, of caves and in the tall grass and whatnot but then we moved more into Rio proper. Uh, my dad at that point was running the Ford Foundation for Latin America and brought my big claim to fame, which I certainly leveraged uh, to great effect. And I'll talk a little bit about why that was important to me emotionally, but was that my dad brought Sesame Street to Latin America, particularly mm-hmm. to Brazil. So we, uh, I was the Sesame Street kid and endured various epithets uh, around Big Bird, mostly Oscar the Grouch, I think, was more prominent since I wasn't that tall at that juncture. So that that was fun. And, you know, my dad was in a very international scene. And that was a, a really dynamic way to grow up because, you know, I was, I was treated as an adult from a very young age. Mm. Um, and, you know, that gave me I suppose certain verbal skills and uh, just I was, you know, respected. My opinions were respected, and and that gave me a certain amount of confidence. But uh, well, sorry, just to interrupt you for a second. I'm curious about that. Um, uh, two things. One, you know, you're kind of like hindsight, probably experience of what it was like to be so international and to, you know, live in that kind of an environment at a young age. Was it just kind of like life as you knew it? Did you have a sense that there was something special? Then I want to, you know, talk about the, you know, treated as an adult thing too. But first, I'm just curious, like, what was that like for you as a kid? Yeah, it's, it's a, astute observation because clearly I've had to uh, unpack the emotional tumult and positive and negative ramifications of the way I grew up. Uh, I've had to do that as an adult. But as a kid, you're absolutely right. I didn't, I was not aware that there were other ways to grow up. Um, You know, I didn't have a lot of friends. I, I mean, how could I? I was moving every six months, six to 12 months to another city or town, um, so there were no there was no opportunity to establish any roots, and uh, I was also quite chubby, borderline corpulent um, kid, having to learn a new language every year, and so establishing friendships for all those aforementioned reasons was extremely difficult for me. Um, and uh, and this is not just a product of, of recollection. This is actually very much kind of my lived experience in the moment. I, I felt a great need to fit in. Um, mm-hmm. And that is something as, you know, we go maybe later into the podcast that has colored 
um, a lot of my life, you know, just the, the good and the bad uh, around around that particular malady or or phenomena. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, just you know, I went to the American school in um, in Gavia, which is uh, you know just outside of Rio, and you know, it was a very international school, but mostly Brazilians. Um, so there was this kind of dichotomy that that took place there kind of in the classroom obviously was english uh but on the playground was was portuguese and uh particularly like uh carioca which was the sort of slangy rio based um kind of portuguese that you know if if one was not fluent in that one was certainly castigated or simply just was unaware of most of the things that were going on and the conversations that were were being had. So, um, so I became quite fluent in carioca and um, and you know have quite vivid memories about the my playground experiences uh, at the American school. I have you know a, a couple stories that I've, I've told, which I'm happy to to retell. Um, that were particularly um, emblematic or symbolic and somewhat scarring. Mm. But um, I'm happy, if that fits your format, I'm happy to, to detour into a couple of specific stories. Um, yeah, sure, sure. Give us, give us a good one. Yeah, so there was the playground dynamic had its hierarchy. And of course, that's true anywhere on any playground. Um, and certainly in 1975 at the American School, uh, in Rio, uh, there was a prominent playground hierarchy, and there was sort of a ringleader who was named Babito, and he was Portuguese, and uh, he was, you know, really your stereotypical playground bully in every facet, and he took great pleasure in in torturing me on the regular for generally for my weight, but for any kind of perceived efficiency. So there was one really fun ritual and pastime that happened on the playground where there was a the there was an area that sloped down and kids would line up and you know when it was their turn they'd run toward the slope and launch themselves up in the air such that they landed on their butt and like skidded down this embankment until it leveled out again. And, you know, over time, as more and more kids did this, there was sort of a, a track or a, almost a, a, a pathway that they'd got worn down and the grass kind of got, got, you know, taken out and it was this kind of like muddy dirt, uh, almost like ski slope. That, that emerged. And I assiduously avoided this this pastime because my body wasn't really meant for launching up in the air too much. Um, but on one particular day, I, I got some, uh, I had an extra dose of gumption and I queued up, uh, you know, and kind of sturdied myself. And, uh, and so, you know, I approached the slope and I, you know, I did my thing. I got going as quickly as I could and I launched myself up and sure enough there I landed on my butt and it was certainly 
wasn't going to receive uh you know three t- three tens from the from the gallery but you know i made it down the hill mm-hmm. and uh and you know, to a couple of cries of Americano, Americano, you know, like whatever, <laughs> like, like people couldn't believe I'd done it. Uh-huh. So, so this was a you know a big moment in on the playground for me because you know it, it, you know I'd finally mustered the confidence to to get myself you know to join the rest of the group in, in what was an activity that repeated itself. So, you know, came back up the hill. And, you know, with vigor and brimming with confidence, got back in the line. And, you know, then it was my turn again. And there I went. And, you know, this time with a little bit of extra vim and launched myself up and landed. And as soon as I landed, I heard a sound that was, that essentially eclipsed all other perceivable phenomena, (laughs) which was the unmistakable um, sound of ripping jeans. And my jeans that were already sort of chafed around the thighs, to be honest, um, had split down the seam of my ass. And as I had gone down the hill, my tidy whities accrued a dirt stain that just kind of streaked down the middle and I got to the bottom of the hill and of course everybody noticed everyone was aware and uh and Babito in unmistakable English says starts to scream this refrain that got repeated for basically the rest of the year which was the American shat his pants. The American ah. shat his pants. <laughs> and uh, oh my God. And there I was at the bottom of the hill with nowhere to hide and um, just feeling, you know, absolutely sort of the distillation of embarrassment and shame. And I sort of uh, shimmied my way back up the hill in, in such a way that limited the amount of angle <laughs> that people could have to, you know, my, my quote-unquote shit-stained underwear <laughs> oh, and uh, moseyed shamefully into the nurse's office and, you know, feigned illness. And, uh, you know, they took my temperature. They're like, well, you seem fine. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. And, you know, my mom dutifully... Uh, came in and picked me up and I sort of shuffled off with the the backpack, you know, Uh low around my waist. And as I was kind of going off and getting into the car, the, you know, the the refrain piped up again, you know, the American shat his pants. And, Uh And so, you know, that's the story. And, you know, I actually haven't really told it that many times. It's actually enjoyable to to tell it, but, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, with stories and I'm sure you've, you've confronted this reality over the course of, of hearing so many, um, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves that, that gird kind of our sense of identity, you know, they deserve additional probing because it's unclear how true they are because we've told ourselves stories about ourselves so many times. But, uh, but to the best of my ability to really 
to really dissect the the, mm-hmm. the honesty and truthfulness of, of this story. I've tried to relate it here. But it, it did take on symbolic value of my life of like, I just can't fit in. I just can't seem to make any real friendships. And not only can I not make friendships, I, I seem to be on the outside of the circle almost every time. Now, mm-hmm. the flip side of that was like, I, my, my life with my parents was really fun and really dynamic. You know, as I relayed before, mm-hmm. I mean, my home life was strange and interesting and, you know, very adult. Um, and, you know, my dad would, would take me on adventures, you know, with him. And, um, and that was wonderful. And, uh, you know, I was fluent in a whole variety of languages at a very early age. And it was actually my fluency in Portuguese and Spanish that gave my parents some degree of pause because as part of wanting to fit in, I wouldn't speak English anymore. Mm. So they were concerned that I just would not be a native English speaker. Uh, they, they probably still have <laughs> that concern. Um, but um, so, you know, when my mother got pregnant with my brother, they started talking about moving back to the States. And, uh, and then that was, that decision was propelled forward by, by two other factors. One, my mother's obstetrician disappeared, <laughs> which people did in, in Brazil <laughs> mm-hmm. on a more than frequent basis. And then my dad got a job working for Carter. Uh, in the Carter administration and came and moved. Um, well, we moved to Miami for a short period when my brother was born and then went to DC. My dad worked for Shirley Hofstetler, who was Secretary of Education. My dad was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Education. And um, and that was kind of a, an entree into another sort of very dynamic adult world of, mm-hmm. of politics and, and DC. And obviously we've had a lot of really interesting conversations about politics. And I, I mm-hmm. think, you know, my interest in it certainly had its germination there, mm-hmm. you know, and my dad, mm-hmm. um, you know, being super involved. Uh, but of course, yeah. yeah Jeff, Carter, let me just ask you, yeah. so, so before we get into the, that, that stage, so first of all, you moved back to the States when you were how old? It was about six or seven. So it was like, okay. you know, Carter was came in in seventy six. My dad probably got that job in seventy seven. So yeah, mm-hmm. I was seven. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, so you know, I, I am kind of struck by this idea that you know you're an outsider, and um, you, you know you feel like an outsider. In fact, you're not being embraced by um, you know your peers, and 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 maybe that's in part because of you being an American. Maybe it's in part. Because um, you, you know, were heavy, you know, maybe it's in part, you know, other reasons that are just kind of your natural way of being. But, but then you have this other side where it's like life is kind of amazing and interesting. These loving parents, all this adventure, all this opportunity. You get to be kind of this adult in these scenarios that you're 
you know, around these these people that treat you that way. And it's like, it's like a double life at a, at a young age, right? I mean, I mean, yeah. and I, and I know you've probably unpacked all of this and we can talk about how it ends up, you know, playing out as an advantage or disadvantage in, in as you, as you're in, in adulthood, but I don't know, does that, does that continue as you come to the States or, you know, what, what, what kind of imprint does that make on you as a, as a kid? Yeah, well, that's a astute observation, and I will say, you know, um, just to underscore the more uh, the advantages to my upbringing is, you know, my dad and my mom. My mother was an artist, a painter, so there was this a lot uh, like the there is a smell, uh, an aroma of of oil paint that sort of pervades my olfactory memory of my youth, you know, every time kind of being in her studio and I'm amusing myself in some way, there's that really distinctive smell of turpentine and oil paints. And, um, and that is just somatically embedded in me. And I loved that, you know, um, even though it's probably not great for me to be inhaling that, but it was, a, it was very, um, it felt like home. And then, you know, I'll say my dad, he came from this generation of um, very motivated, you know, public servants, very much in the um, esprit of Kennedy. You know, they, my, both my mom and my dad were in the Peace Corps before I was born. And so his whole community were like these young people that just really were, they were internationalists, they were into politics, they were really just on the front lines of trying to make the world better. You know, there was that, that era uh, of, of, I think, Kennedy disciples, of which my dad was one. So, like, the folks that I got to sit around the dinner table with were just amazing. They were doing the most amazing things that there, that there were to do. So, Anyways, to to then you know move forward, this dichotomy that you astutely have observed in my life of of almost kind of two parallel lives, it did continue for a number of years when we moved after moving back to the states because we were still moving around a lot, and I think that was a big part of it. Is was that you know I, I never had an opportunity to really put down you know quote unquote like roots and establish relationships and often often it's the case that time is really necessary to establish those relationships um but we moved to dc and then carter lost <laughs> quite handily um and then we moved to connecticut to western connecticut and i was there for a couple of years but really then we moved to New Canaan, Connecticut, which is in, in Fairfield County, southwestern Connecticut. My dad started commuting into New York. Um, ironically, he he ended up running the Fulbright program. So as part of uh, running a, a nonprofit called IIE, where he, he was for 17 years. So he was, you know, commuting from Connecticut into New York. And New Canaan was really the first place where I had the opportunity to establish you know significant significant roots um but still some of the same kind of social patterns were, remained present in my life you know i was still 
you know, chubby kid. And, um, and while I did make friends, you know, I was still, <laughs> you know, kind of relegated to, you know, a little bit to the margins. And, and then I had sort of an inflection experience in my life that that really dismantled that that dichotomy, if you will, mm-hmm. and um, and I, and I don't mean to really paint a, a sanctimonious sob story about you know friendships. It's not like I had nobody, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but uh, in fact, you know, I, I did have this one little group uh, in New Canaan um, that were we were very sports oriented. Growing up, I mean, obviously, you know, we're more or less in the same generation, mm-hmm. and and you know, life was just quite different back mm-hmm. then. You know, you were friends with the people that like lived right in your neighborhood, and after mm-hmm. school, you'd come home and you'd just play sports until you were out in the fields and on the courts and in your driveway, and until you were just sweaty and dirty and gross, and your mom would yell for you to come in for dinner and you'd ignore her three or four times. And, you know, then finally you'd come in and, you know, that was, it was a little bit Andy Griffithy um, growing up. And so, you know, I come back after school and, you know, we would play, you know, we would set up uh, either, we would have full court basketball in our, in our driveway. And we'd put the hoops down at eight feet. Uh, and so we could dunk or barely dunk. Uh, mm-hmm. and that was super fun. And we would do that, or we would build little mini tennis courts out of, um, out of trash cans and two by fours, or we would steal all my mom's all purpose flour. And we'd go out to the backyard and make football lines with hashtags and you know we were very like creative at our mm-hmm. our sporting life and in eighth grade I started to develop a bump on my knee and uh, it seemed sort of innocuous enough but it was very topical um, but uh, but it was prevalent and it was growing you know we didn't really think that much about it. You know, it was there. It was maybe the size of a small grape. And then playing basketball one day, and I remember the particular uh, awkward spin move that I was attempting. I, I've, I tripped and I fell on that knee. And this kind of bump, which is really the best way I could describe it, sort of it is kind of shattered and um and it looked like this kind of purple series of purple spider webs or almost little worms kind of going you know up and down around the the area of my patella and my left knee and kind of up into my lower thigh and uh and I woke up the next morning and this tumor had sort of recongealed and uh, and reformed, and it was significantly larger. Um, so at this juncture, it was definitely worthy of attention. So we went to Norwalk Hospital and had it biopsied. And uh, surgery and medicine in the early '80s, uh, it was it's just a different beast <laughs> than it mm-hmm. is now. You know, I'm sure you could do this with a laser. Uh, at this juncture, but you know, this was an old-fashioned, you know, 
scalpel uh, situation and, you know, sutures and stuff. So it was uncomfortable. And I went home and a couple of days later, the doctor, the surgeon called and the, um, the biopsy had been uh, examined and it was malignant. So this started sort of a domino effect of, uh, of, of different processes. And I ended up getting checked into Sloan Kettering Cancer Center um, uh, as a 13-year-old. Um, and uh, I, w- I went to see the surgeon who was... I would categorize him as the meanest man I'd ever met. Um, I had come in, my leg was still, I had my favorite sweatpants on. I remember these sweatpants. They were these black sweatpants. They don't really need any more description except they were my favorite. And um, and uh, so I, I wore them in. They were comfortable. And um, he sort of, I waited forever. He had office hours on Wednesdays and you would walk into the most doldrum, nondescript, cottage cheese, fluorescent lit waiting room. And you'd sit there with people who had prosthetics and I mean, just like and terminal issues. And it was just bleak. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. not where a 13-year-old wanted to spend his spring break. Mm-hmm. And um, finally, you know, he got in to see me. I walked into his office and the decor of his office had limb prosthetics uh, uh, attached to the wall behind him along the entire wall. Like this guy oh had God. no bedside manner. This was like, yeah. he was all business. So I got up at his little examining table and uh, my, I hadn't even had the sutures out yet. So it's like the, the incision was still fresh and quite sore. And I got up on the table and I remember the thing that, that bummed me out the most is that he took out an X-Acto knife. And instead of ro- rolling up my sweatpants, he cut my favorite pair of sweatpants all the way down. Oh, How could you do that? Right. One of my few, few joys that I had at that juncture. You know, he started poking at the incision and, you know, he took out a Sharpie and he started drawing on my leg. You know, he's like, okay, we're going to go in here. We're going to go in here. Da, 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 da. Anyways, so he's like, okay, I'll do the surgery, you know, like book, book it out and I'll do it. Mm-hmm. So, but he was, he had a, you know, significant reputation. So, so we went with old Dr. Markov and, um, and I just tried to get the first room available at Sloan Kettering. And, um, you know, for those who aren't familiar with Sloan Kettering, it, it's basically the preeminent cancer hospital, maybe in the world, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only bed that they had for me at that juncture was in pediatrics. So they are in the pediatric ward. Um, and I was 13, so I could have really gone into an adult ward or I could have gone into a pediatrics ward. But basically, I was just, I wouldn't call it happy, but I was content to take the first bed that was available. And I'll, I'll just say that the doorway into the pediatrics ward at Sloan Kettering is most often a one-way door. You know, it's not, for me, I was going in with a tumor that was malignant, but it was largely topical. 
And, um, you know, at that juncture, I mean, I was only 13, so I didn't know any better. I certainly wasn't, um, you know, battling for my life in any way. But that put me in the exception group um, on that particular floor uh, of Sloan. And I was paired up with a kid named Adam who had terminal leukemia. I think he was eight or nine years old, weighed 35, 40 pounds, who, you know, died while I was there at Sloan. Mm. And I spent, um, I spent two weeks at Sloan and uh, I had the procedure and, uh, and then just, I had to recover. And mm-hmm. um, I'll, since this is an audio format mm-hmm. I'll, I'll spare you the, the visuals that are still uh, apparent on my knee but mm-hmm. um at that juncture there was not a lot of concern for cosmetics <laughs> as it pertained mm-hmm. to surgery so my knee is uh, not a pleasant thing to look at mm-hmm. um but you know he made a large incision up and down my knee and uh, and then injected liquid nitrogen sort of uh, uh, around the area to kill, um, obviously, any remnant malignant malignancy uh, that obviously also had impact on healthy cells. Um, and it's still, my knee is still numb to the touch, you know, 37 years later. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I recovered. I remember they wouldn't let me out until I could walk down the hallway and back on my own. Mm. And, you know, for the life of me, I just couldn't do it. And mm. I wanted to get out of there so bad. I mm. mean, there's no place I wanted to leave more than that place. Yeah. Um, and finally, you know, I did it. I finally, I made it up and down and they put me in a wheelchair and they wheeled me out that door. And I don't think my life has ever been the same. And this was mm. the, really the inflection point. Uh, of my life in myriad ways. Um, I think it, um, I, obviously I won't, I won't overlay it with, with too much analysis um, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll pause, well, I'll pause there, but yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think that's a pretty important statement and um, you know, I, I'm just kind of struck by like this um, story to this point, you know, the, 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 first 13 years of your life, which, um, you know, you've described as, um, you know, having this feeling of being an outsider and, and certainly, you know, literally being outside of, uh, the U S and, and, you know, in all these different cultures and, you know, the, the way that you're, you know, kind of being treated as an adult when you're, when you're a kid and, and now this, right. You, you, you have cancer and you're in an environment where, you know, young children are dying around you. Uh, I would imagine, you know, what you said to be true, that this is, you know, a really, really, you know, poignant time in your life. And I'm wondering, you know, well, what happens from here and, and, and why, you know, tell me a little bit more about like, what's striking you, what's coming in that's really um, moving you and, and how does it move you as you start to go through high school and, and into college? I will say that that experience exists at this intersection of adolescence. So I was 13 mm-hmm. and there's hormones pumping through and, and I wasn't particularly pimply, thank mm-hmm. God, because I had enough issues. But certainly there was already things happening 
biochemically in in my body and also just in my brain um, that would just under normal circumstances be sort of this period of 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 growing up and and um, but that kind of with this on top of it, I think it really almost hyperbolized this this uh, this evolution so I got back from that experience and uh, I was pretty immobilized for the course of that summer and I uh, got a new got many new pairs of sweatpants um, <laughs> and uh, spent most of the summer watching watching television to be honest couldn't really do that much but over the course of the summer I lost a ton of weight um, and obviously I was growing because my body was entering uh, sort of early adolescence and this next chapter was sort of punctuated by a number of things and of that fall oh well it was actually Christmas day uh, I my parents announced uh, <laughs> not with great precision or purpose <laughs> that they were getting divorced so you know there was this new dynamic you know appearing and uh, my mom was leaving and uh and I had a brother who was well I was 13 so he was 8 or 7 or 8 and i mean there's a little bit of of a sort of color to this which is you know my parents were fighting over this period and um and it was almost a strange masochistic delight that my brother and I took in listening to them fight. Mm. Um, almost like we would gather outside their room or on the stairs as a sort of um, invisible peanut gallery. And, you know, we would kind of rib each other and be like, oh man, that was a good one or whatever. Just kind mm-hmm. of strange. But, um, but mm-hmm. I think probably... Just probably uh, how you knew how to deal with it at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right. Anyway, so this is how we discovered that our parents were were splitting up. So we kind of overheard it, and um, and uh, you know I was very protective of my brother at that juncture, and just for a million reasons. And I think kind of the dynamics are too complicated for for the length of this particular show, but, you know, I felt a great fealty to my father and he also just felt that it was his life's mission to keep his kids. And a a lot of that is a reflection of Mm -hmm. the fact that his dad kind of split on him. Mm -hmm. And so I think he made a promise to himself that he would never do that. So my mom moved out and, um, and my dad, uh, and we stayed with my dad. And that was a very rare phenomenon. I mean, it still mm-hmm. is. But I think mm-hmm. at that juncture, you know, almost unheard of that the father stays in the house and keeps the kids. But, uh, but you know, my mother, you know, in retrospect, was just doing the best she could given the situation that presented itself. And... She really, really fought this. And to be honest, I think the divorce proceedings were like 
it was it was sort of the time of Kramer versus Kramer. I'm not sure that that dates mm-hmm. me quite a bit, but um, yeah. that pretty much describes the experience that my mm-hmm. parents had. It was super legaled up, and uh, by the time the judge actually issued a decision, I think I was 21. <laughs> so wow. I, was, wow. I was an adult, basically yeah. out of college at that juncture. So. You know, it went on and on and on uh, for a really long time. At that time, it, my parents really felt that I should not be there for for a number of reasons. Part of it was they really wanted, didn't feel like the education that I was getting in public school was really sufficient or was really going to kind of stimulate any intellectual growth for me. And I also think that they wanted to shield me from a lot of the, the kind of um, pernicious, you know, goings on of the divorce. Mm-hmm. So they sent me to boarding school. Mm-hmm. So I went to boarding school, I think it was 13 or well, 14, I guess. Yeah. Right. 14. And cause I entered, I was a little young for my grade. So I entered as a sophomore at Hotchkiss, which is a boarding school up in uh, Northwestern Connecticut, right where kind of Connecticut meets New York State and the Berkshire section of, of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't want to go. I was, I was fighting it tooth and nail. In fact, I believe uh, I punched a window at one juncture. Um, <laughs> when you get the highlights of one's upbringing, they seem a lot more dramatic than, than yeah, it actually was. I mean, like I yeah. said, I, I skipped the 20,000 episodes of Brady Bunch. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I showed up at Hotchkiss, you know, kicking and screaming the entire way. And something really changed for me there. Hmm. Even though when I looked at myself in the mirror, I saw like an awkward fat kid. Mm-hmm. That and everybody else that had known me up until that point probably saw some rendition of what I saw. Mm-hmm. But when I went to Hotchkiss, no, I had no baggage. Nobody knew me. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I know one person there just from my town, but and even though I saw a fat kid, that's not what other people saw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had lost a lot of weight. I had grown and. In retrospect, when I look at photos of that time, I was a pretty damn handsome young kid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, I had, like, to be completely candid, like all the hottest girls in the school, mm-hmm. the upper class mm-hmm. girls, all the everything just mm-hmm. all over me. <laughs> and wow. I'm like, wait. Yeah. I was like, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> interesting. Interesting. So, so what's, what's that like? How does that unfold? I mean, you're, you're now maybe for the first time in your life, you know, uh, have a real sense of belonging and you're, you're like not just on the inside, you're the guy. Like, you know, I mean, how does that shift for you? Do you, do you, do you know how to handle that? Do you, you know, do you, how, what are the dynamics of still the inner voice that has you as the fat kid? You know, what's happening here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I certainly recognize that my, my position in the monarchy was tenuous, <laughs> um, but there was this one particular 
girl named, uh, of course, this perfect name right out of central casting. She was French, um, and her name was Nathalie Desvastich. And uh, she was hands down the most sought after girl at Hotchkiss. And I just became her project. I don't really know how to describe it any better than that. I mean, her boyfriend, um, she was older, but also a bit of a project. Um, she was sophisticated and cosmopolitan in every way that I wasn't. You know, in fact, I remember her, her father, um, who's a stereotypic French guy, lived in Trump Tower. So that give you mm-hmm. so the whole thing was very gilded, mm-hmm. um, and she would um, literally kidnap me on the weekends from Hotchkiss and take me into the city and mm-hmm. dress me up and bring me to Nell's. I mean, I, the, the, yeah. Nell's was sort of like the the club, uh-huh. uh, and of course, she knew all the bouncers. So she there was no velvet uh-huh. there no velvet rope uh, going on, and you know, all of a sudden. I went from pretty much like, you know, I won't call myself a loser, but, you know, yeah, but yeah. to like in the VIP section, in the yeah. private room at Nell's with all sorts of, you know, 80s goings on, you know, yeah. powders and things right. <laughs> flying about. And, yeah. you know, in a, in a like thin Rob Lowe, uh, leather necktie and like, you know, uh-huh. all these things. Yeah. Like, who am I? Yeah. And, um, but, you know, it's funny because like I was a bit just for my own self preservation, Brett, I was, uh, I was, I had to be a social chameleon to exist. Uh-huh. And I had to speak different languages. I had to have different yeah. interests. I had to slip my way in. I had to change my colors in order yeah. to kind of fit in. And so, you know, this was just another stage of that in some ways. It's a happier stage, you know, it was like certainly a more privileged stage. But yeah, there's just a, obviously my self-esteem, my mm-hmm. confidence, it, it didn't, it, it grew by leaps and bounds. It, you know, I was a different uh, person um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, really my sense for being liked. Mm-hmm. Um, for for better or worse, to be honest, um, mm-hmm. and um, and then also just the experience from an education perspective of Hotchkiss was second to none. I mean, mm-hmm. I was. I mean, it was a very. And what was that movie with uh, Robin Williams? You know, um, where he's Ted the Poet teacher. Society. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah. really, yeah. just right out of there. You know, it was a. Yeah. Uh, Pretty conservative time. It was coat and tie every day, chapel twice a week, classes on Saturdays, heavy emphasis on sports uh, mm-hmm. and extracurriculars. And I'd become a pretty um, strong tennis player at that juncture. So I was on the team, I was on the basketball team. And, you know, I was just, uh, uh, you know, really in this period thriving in, in mm-hmm. many, many ways. Um, and I'm curious, Jeff, you know, uh, kind of jumping ahead a little bit, maybe in the interest of time, you know, it, it is it is a very uh, interesting story to hear in that, like, you've kind of gone from one extreme to another and you've had the kind of 
experiences of both, you know, really profoundly. So I'm, what I'm curious about is how does this start to shape you as you start to um, come into young adulthood and really start to think about career and, you know, kind of, you know, maybe not all the way into what you're doing today, but kind of maybe that, that, you know, next stage, you know, college into early adulthood into, you know, career, how, how do you see these very different experiences really starting to shape how you start to live your life? Well, I I would say that the next big inflection point for me was I went to Columbia, uh, freshman year. Um, I became infatuated in a very mystical and spiritual experience. And uh, that is actually unique for me because I tend to be somewhat of an empiricist. Um, uh, But I became absolutely head over heels in love with a young woman, um, Skylar, who now I've been with for 34 years. And uh, there was definitely a chivalrous period (laughs) there for quite a while. But, um, you know, I think I had, uh, there was a crossroads as it pertained to relationships for me where I could really lean in and say like, okay, I'm going to live a life of, of commitment or I'm really going to lean out and uh, I've been hurt and my mother left and I don't have trust, but I leaned in and, mm. uh, but I leaned in in a way that was very needy you know for everything that i just described i mean obviously a lot of my self-worth and a lot of my identity was defined through the eyes of others to be honest Mm -hmm. and um and that turned me into like a social chameleon a bit of a Mm -hmm. people pleaser uh someone that was like i said i was trying to fit in someone that didn't understand the delineation between fitting in and belonging. And Skylar, my wife, was just the opposite. She was mm. confident in every way. She didn't need approval from anyone. She was really unique in that she had very little ego. She was not going to be defined by what she did or what other people thought of her or you know, her socioeconomic status, or et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, and she didn't heal me, but she gave me the support and the infrastructure to really help me heal myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was not something that was rapid. <laughs> it was something mm-hmm. that that took years. And uh, you know, um, but fortunately, I've had three plus decades to, to try to do it. Yeah. Women maybe do that to us. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've, I've been with my wife for 25 years and um, yeah, I think there's like a sense of um, maturity maybe that, that women bring into the, the field that, you know, kind of often start to awaken us. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, kind of, um, if you could speak to what that healing path 
looks like for you? How how did you go about it? I mean, what what was it that really starts to get you into like a a new state, maybe a more conscious state? Yeah, well, at first it certainly wasn't purposeful. You know, as I got into college and Skylar and I, you know, really solidified, we really grew just an incredible network of relationships and friends. And uh, my dad had this house um, in New Canaan still, and he was single and the house was sort of offered up. And, and, you know, while I was uh, a pretty serious student at Hotchkiss, uh, I, I would not say that that was a um, characteristic of my Columbia <laughs> experience. And I really lived for the weekends and we would congregate these massive parties out in Connecticut. And it sounds sort of just flippant, but in retrospect, really what I was doing is like we were starting to build community. And it wasn't always just getting drunk, although certainly that was some of it, but it was a little more interesting. It was people would come out and read their poetry. And we were, I was a musician and my friends were musicians, so we'd play music. And it had some real depth, some sharing qualities to it. And, uh, um, and it really kind of was a springboard into the rest of my life. And if I have to examine a thread that has mm-hmm. pulled through the whole thing, it's really been around building community. And so much mm-hmm. of that, to be honest, was a direct response to my inability to create connection early mm-hmm. on in my life. Mm-hmm. And I sanctified that so much that it became the defining feature later in my life. And mm-hmm. I think I obviously developed some skills around just general emotional intelligence and mm. and um, more socio-emotional components of my life. Um, so, but at first it was not, you know, particularly intentional. And then I, I founded a, a, a management company and a record label, but essentially what we really were doing was, was promoting events. We were signing mm. bands and, um, and we had some successes and that was a lot of fun. And, but really we were like putting on, you know, big, shows every weekend in New York City and pulling, you know, tons of bands on the bill and, you know, bringing hundreds and sometimes thousands of people together to celebrate music and have a good time. And, uh, and, you know, I basically, as I grew my career within the music business, you know, my contemporaries were starting festivals like Austin City Limits and Bonnaroo. And I had bands that were on all of these festivals and I would go and I'd be sitting backstage sort of grokking the the social engineering that was happening at a lot of these big festivals and just seeing the power of community to produce, in the case of music, a lot of joy, um, but also community is very protean. It, it can also um, really lead to a lot of healing and transformation. Mm-hmm. And the the biggest, most prominent example of that in my life um, was in 2001. So my office was in the little radius, right two blocks north of the World Trade Center, and um, and September 11th happened, and uh, you know in the collective grief 
uh, in the aftermath of of 9-11, living in New York was a really interesting time. You know, it was a time of of tremendous unity and really beauty and grace in a lot of ways where people found a lot of common humanity that, that seems quite absent now. But, um, and also it inspired people to do somewhat crazy things that they might otherwise not do. And one of those people was my wife and she built a yoga studio at Ground Zero uh, right in the aftermath of 2001 or 9-11 in my building. And that opened, I think, in the early months of 2002. And uh, it was just, and this was not like an equinox or anything. This was mm-hmm. the most rickety, humble little yoga studio you could possibly imagine. And it was, you know, before there was a, a yoga studio on, on every block. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people associate the financial district with business, but it's actually quite um, a residential neighborhood. And, I basically just got a front row seat to witness the power of this little community center, which happened to do yoga, um, really changed the arc of, of people's lives. I mean, you know, they'd go up kind of these rickety lime green stairs kind of past my office and they'd, you know, go into this tiny little one room studio and sweat and then come out into this tiny vestibule where they'd hung their jackets and, and, and choose and sit on the floor. I think there's a little futon over there in the corner and with their hearts open and sweaty and, and just have the most incredibly profound connections and really, you know, rediscover their creative spark and and really heal. And, you know, that just completely changed the arc of both my professional and personal life. I was like, you know, Mm. community, particularly in context of, in the context of healing modalities Mm -hmm. is so powerful. Mm. Yeah. um, yeah. I I think you and I, you know, really connect on this, you know, this is, you know, a a big part of why I do this show and, and, you know, what we're doing with gravity and what I'm very intrigued with, this keeps coming up. more and more so, I mean, even a whole bunch this week on various podcast episodes and, and, and kind of group conversation, thought leaders, there's a, there's a growing understanding, awareness of how kind of uh, the people on the outside, um, you know, can really make a difference. In a, in a in a pretty massive way that really ends up becoming the inside, you know, quote unquote, you know, if, if you want to be that or not, it's like um, the fact that you were this outsider, the fact that you kind of got to understand what that was like, I think really ends up becoming this embodied experience. And depending on like how woo-woo you want to get with it, you know, maybe it's it's a part of a divine architecture that's just such perfection, you know, that we're not awake to for, you know, most of our life, you know, that's my worldview. And, you know, I, I, you know, and then, then when you do wake up to it, you know, the challenge is trying to uh, recognize that that's what's happening, right. While it's happening. But, but, you know, it, to me, it sounds like 
you had to have that embodied experience, or at least you did have that embodied experience that allows you to then really, really understand the value of creating a community that is healing and that does allow outsiders in. And, you know, it's like maybe, you know, in, in kind of more practical terms, you, you can't, you know, run a restaurant unless you bust the tables, right? Like you don't know how to build community unless you've not been a part of one and you know what people on the outside are looking for. I don't know. Is that true for you? I mean, how, how much of that kind of like experience of your life has really fueled your work? And we haven't really even touched on, you know, what that yoga studio <laughs> becomes and now what you're doing, which yeah. I want to try to get to, you know, here in, in the next, you know, few minutes. Yeah, well, I would subscribe to your worldview there. Um, you know, I don't think you necessarily have to suffer to gain wisdom, but certainly, you know, moments of tumult um, can, you know, certainly lead to be these inflection points and be some of, you know, really, you know, your greatest teacher in a lot of ways. And certainly, I think in my case, my inability to belong um, underwrote my desire to help create communities of belonging. Um, and you know that, as you alluded to, um, led to the founding of a business that I, I grew for 10 years called Wanderlust, which uh, is which was, really the largest yoga retreat in the world if you could imagine we were putting you know 3 to 5000 people on uh you know in resorts over the courses of 3 or 4 days to have immersive transformational uh experiences um clearly there was a demand for this kind of community gathering as we built i think at its height 68 of those events in 20 countries um and then, you know, exited that business and subsequently started a business called Commune, um, which obviously speaks directly to the uh, um, the importance that I place, you know, on community. And you know, it's a it's a learning platform where we create courses with leading teachers and authors and thought leaders, um, and, and we create a kind of community learning experience online around these teachings. And my wife and I bought a retreat center, which was Neil Young's old funky ranch up in Topanga. And we built a, you know, community atmosphere up there and host a lot of spiritual and wellness events. And I built a production facility up there where we shoot all of this content and we curate these masterminds and put interesting people together and see kind of what ideas spit out the other side. Um, so certainly, you know, that thread has been pulled um, uh, with ferocity um, throughout mm -hmm. throughout my entire life. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I would say that this is also just as one begins to have their own spiritual awakening, if one is is fortunate enough to have one. All of these truths that take us maybe half of our life or our whole life become almost immediately present. Um, mm. You know, we, 
live in hyper individuated, uh, a hyper individuated society. I mean, individualism right now seems to be sanctified above everything. Um, and it's also, you know, the course of human life, the moment that we exit the complete and utter connection of the womb, we start on this inexorable march towards defining ourselves as an individual, as separate from others. Um, but, but when we engage in uh, in meditation, and I'm a regular meditator on my best days, um, you know, this illusion of self becomes apparent. And, you know, we do get glimpses into the realization of non-self. Um, this could probably be a podcast that would take mm. us hundreds of hours to to dissect. But, you know, this is what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and everyone else was prattling on about. There seems to be a consilience behind every religion, which mm. is that we are just modifications of a greater self mm. and that we get glimpses into this sense of utter connection and interdependence, you know, on, on our best days when when we're meditating and we go on, we go beyond just the witnessing of transitory phenomena arising moment to moment and actually lose sense of being the witness and just become the world and realize that we are just the space in which all of this phenomenon is existing. Mm -hmm. You, me, thoughts, sensations, feelings, um, this is what we are. We are just pure consciousness. That is the only thing that is impermanent. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, this, this is a, you know, this takes so long, Brad, to unpack. That journey is mm -hmm. 50 years long. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I think that many of these lessons that we learn the hard way, you know, through this process of individuation, through failing and getting back up and failing again, you know, hopefully leads us to these places of greater wisdom or greater insight. And uh, that's certainly been the path that I've been fortunate enough to, to forge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it's it, listening to this story, your story, it also kind of reminds me of another worldview that I hold, which is is starting to become even more and more clear for me, which which, you know, I don't know if it's true for you or not, but um I'm just seeing kind of how our experience in life um can continue to serve us and how we can um create from that place, right? Especially as you become more aware and conscious to what you know you're describing as this this conscious you know energy right so you know if you kind of like take the woo woo out for a second you know for those that might not want to go all the way there you know and you just look at like the practical matter right we talked a little bit about the outsider coming in and this the desire to create community because you you, you long for one at one point but then there's like you're the club kid now, like, right? The boarding school, run around behind the velvet rope, right? And so what does that lead to? That leads to entertainment, to, you know, productions, to, you know, events, to festivals, right? I mean, that's just like, that's where you were. That's what you were kind of like immersed in and you you would apply it, right? And and that, and, and then, you know, you you get exposed to yoga, 
right? And to community there. And so then you take the, the event festival, you know, club aspect and put it to yoga, which is what the, the you know, the kind of secret sauce of, of Wanderlust is, is these weren't just yoga retreats. These were like a different kind of vibe for, for that space. And then, you know, now, now to commune, right? You, you, you kind of learn through the healing process and you get exposed to thought leaders, you know, by, by that. And, and I'm just kind of like continually seeing these threads, right? Getting woven as you, as a, as a being are being woven and you keep kind of creating through that process, um, at, you know, as you are, you're expressed in your work, uh, and it's yeah. beautiful. I mean, it's really, it's really. I think this is it. This is what I think we are supposed to be doing, and it's it's fun to hear it, you know, and and to see it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm not sure I ever thought about it exactly that way, but I think that's quite insightful. Um, you know, that there's just one experience of what it is like to be me. And that is my subjective experience of consciousness and the contents of that consciousness that I accrue <laughs> day in and day out through three-dimensional space-time. So yes, I was backstage at Nell's and point one second later, I was still there. And you know, every moment is a little bit like the last moment until, uh, until you, know, you look at it over periods of time. And you know, there are elements of our life that are deterministic, like you said, that one thing happened and that that created a, a prior cause that led to the next thing happening and that led to the next thing happening. And I have all sorts of thoughts about free will, which we could discuss and, and unpack and excavate on another time. But I do think that what is makes life such an interesting dance uh, is that is, is what I alluded to before, this notion that we are simply just pure awareness you know, perceiving transitory phenomenon happening moment to moment, things come into our awareness, they arise and they subside. And that is part of what our experience is like. But that also exists at the intersection with our personhood, with the contents of consciousness, with the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, that gird our sense of personal identity and make one moment like the next moment. I mean, you're not going to wake up, Brad, tomorrow and not be from Columbus. You know, there is a, a psychological and physical continuity to your life that helps you create some sort of identity, right? And um, if you didn't have that and you were just pure awareness, <laughs> you know, who would you be? So we exist sort of at the intersection of, of, of awareness and story. I like to think of it as, as our experience life and our narrative life. And then we take our narrative life and through our experience life, we create, you know, and we, it's almost like you could think of it as applied imagination. And in my life, um, Yes, indeed. A lot of these stories, a lot of these contents of consciousness have then been applied and manifested uh, and instantiated into the things that I've done, you know, commune, mm -hmm. you know, but they all come back to, you know, the core, what it, as you begin to remove the koshas, what they say, or the sheaths in yoga, and really try to identify like, who am I, you know? 
at my core essence, who am I? You know, I am just a refraction of consciousness looking to connect with you and with other people. And that just gets reflected in all these sorts of different ways. Like, oh, I have a retreat center. Oh, I have a retreat. Oh, I have a festival. And, um, and you know, I'm so blessed that in my life, I've been able to pursue an existence where what I do is a reflection of who I am. And that is perhaps the luckiest existence anyone could have, right? Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously, I've put in a lot of hard work. I've put in a lot of dedication. Um, but there is something blessed about the fact that I wake up every morning and I essentially just reflect who I am every day through my works mm-hmm. and actions. And yeah. I suppose this is the eightfold path, and it's a Buddhist thing. But mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, uh, I think, to the degree one can align one's works and actions with their highest spiritual principles. And I'm not, I certainly don't claim that I'm doing that every day. But that is, I think, the the best way we we can live our lives. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that you know was kind of my you know point on this you know, way to use our lives to create, you know, I, I, I don't think it's luck. Um, I just don't. I mean, I do think it is like the ultimate blessing to really be able to align your life and your work into one that really is joyous. And even if it's hard and challenging, it's, there's nothing else you'd rather do with your time. I think that is really a blessing to be able to do. I, I think you've made that choice. You know, I think you've worked really hard and fought against the societal norms and pressures that maybe you had. I don't know if you know they were parental, but they're certainly societal. I mean, you know, there, I'm sure there were a whole bunch of kids out of you know, boarding school in Columbia that were going to work on Wall Street and following different paths that you, you know, went down, you know, again, like yoga today, it might sound pretty glamorous to, you know, be the, the, the yoga, uh, you know, the yoga um, retreat guy, right? But like, you know, 20 years ago, wasn't quite so mainstream. And so I, I think you've really kind of, you know, made made some tough choices along the way. And that I think it's an important thing to underscore that that, you know, having that blessed life, and it is a blessing, um, does require to really, you know, like you said, commit and lean in and 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 you know trust and and you know fight against those those, you know, societal pressures that, you know, really do make it hard for people to do what you're doing. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly in the eyes of my grandmother, who just expected that I would be the first Jewish president of the United States, I'm not sure. Hey, I would it's be not too late. It's not too late. <laughs> I vote for you. <laughs> well, my grandmother will never see it, but I, I might not yeah. be a success in her eyes. Although that's not true, I, I'm sure she'd be quite pleased. But you know, Brett, all we have is our attention. You know, this is all. <laughs> You know, people often feel paralyzed in the face of the enormity of the world's problems, and we don't need to enumerate them. There's so many. But one thing that we have absolutely utter control of, and what 
everyone in the world is vying for is our attention, you know, and our attention is aimable as part of consciousness. We can aim our attention. We can shine a flashlight on what we choose to. And there's not, when you start to unpack the nature of genetics and environment and prior causes and randomness, there's not a lot of room for free will, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And we have a, that seems to contradict the intuition as part of our, that exists as part of our lived experience. But really, when you begin to examine the nature of how things happen, um, there, there's not a lot of freedom. We all need to breathe, and that requires mm-hmm. photosynthesis and, you know, plankton and all sorts of other things. So, but one thing we do seem to be able to control is where we put our attention moment to moment. And if we can investigate the nature of the mind such that we can direct our attention in ways that are positive, then that seems to create prior, uh, its own domino effect of prior causes. And for example, the more I meditate, the more equanimous and content and connected I feel. The more I put my attention towards community and the importance of fostering community, the more community I will make, I will generate or foster. And I think this is really important because people can get, and I consider myself part of people, uh, people can get quite distracted in life. Certainly plenty of reason to be distracted. Um, But if there's any advice that I can uh, share with anyone, it's that really acknowledge the fact that you can control your attention. And when you begin to train your attention in a particular way, you begin to almost immediately see uh, really beneficial results. And, And those results can be you know, physiological, they can be professional, um, they can be relational. So that's, uh, that's yeah. what I'm learning. Good. It's, it's um, a good thing to kind of land on, no question. And uh, although I, I actually want to wrap up with um, one final question, which might be a little bit more lighthearted. Um, in our uh, last uh, conversation, you had uh, kind of very um, naturally woven in um, something that sounded like, you know, when I was at Oprah's house, dot, dot, dot. And then, and then you ended the conversation by saying, um, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to hop off here in a minute. I have a phone call with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> And so, and so, and, 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 and they were not at all name dropping. This is just your life. I mean, including Charles Eisenstein and, and Deepak Chopra and Russell Brand and, and the kind of, you know, who's who of, of outsiders that are now really leading in a truly, you know, spiritual sense and, you know, making an impact in the way that, you know, I'm very, um, energized. And, um, you know, when I told my wife that, that I knew somebody that goes to Oprah's house, you know, that was that I, I alone got the benefit of that. So, um, <laughs> what I guess I'm getting at is, um, 
you know, from the the chubby Americano, you know, with, <laughs> with the, with the crap stains, you know, um, to, you know, the guy who's in the super soul 100 and really in the center of a pretty, um, important group of people. I, I think they're important because I think they're standing for the things that are really important for humanity. You know, maybe just, just take a minute as we wrap up and kind of talk about you know what it's like to be in the center of all that now. I mean, you you are you know with commune, you are leading you know um, a, or or a part of a movement that you know really is aimed at at healing, and and you've been doing that for a long time now, Wonderlust. And um, how do you feel about you know kind of where you sit and 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 the future? Yeah, well, it's certainly. Uh, been one of the most gratifying parts of my life, and I, I get to rob people's wisdom <laughs> and synthesize it and plagiarize it for my own uh, benefit. Um, just through the conversations I, I'm fortunate enough to have with so many, just people ten times smarter than me, often with an expertise, um, and that just pushes me. I mean, just you know, I'm a podcast host also, and uh, just by the token of trying to avoid embarrassment and own my own personal vanity, um, I read books like, uh, you know, I probably read two books a week. Right now I'm reading this book, Sadhguru's new book, because I have to interview him. He's coming to my house on Sunday. So <laughs> I have to, you know, I have no choice. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, well, if you uh, want me to step in for you, I'll read the book real <laughs> like, fast. Yeah, <laughs> to be, I'm cheating a little bit on, on Audible, but yeah, um, but you know, so there's um, and there's a flywheel effect to a lot of these things. So certainly, that you know, you're at Oprah's house, and I, for some reason, she did put me on this list that got me uh, invited to a lot of interesting events, and I made a lot of relationships from those events. And Oprah is a great example uh, of someone um, who sits in the middle of a lot of relationships and she's a master at it. And, you know, to be honest, I've taken some pages from that book of like, you know, you put yourself in the middle of a lot of different relationships. And for me, I've never been protective about my relationships. I'm just a complete open book. If anyone listening, well... I'm not going to open that. I'm not going to give anyone Deepak Chopra's phone <laughs> cell phone number. But you know, I, I, I'm not. Um, I have no sense of proprietariness about my relationships, and that's really served me uh, because you know I love some of the most gratifying moments is introducing Russell and Deepak over text and mm-hmm. watching, and then they don't exclude me from the text. So then I watch the thread build over six months and I'm like, mm. this is so cool. Uh, yeah. Just the exchange of ideas that's happening. Yeah. And then my, that opportunity that that affords me to be a sponge and soak in the, the, uh, the wisdom that at least I can understand and process and then, mm-hmm. synth- and then be able to synthesize that with what I heard from Marianne or what I heard from Paul Hawken or, or Dr. Mark Hyman or, or Byron Katie or Wim Hof or all of these other people that I've been able to, to, to befriend. And in a way, I, over time, 
you know, through the, the combination of all of these influences, you begin to develop your own unique signature of how you see the world. And, uh, and that's sort of where I am. I'm right in the middle of that process, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I just, I love bringing people together, you know, and, um, and, you know, this weekend, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm hosting the first event that I've been able to host, obviously because of COVID. Um, and it's an outdoor event and it's kind of spread out. It's not very big. It's 40 people, all kind of teachers and thought leaders um, where I, you know, I'm inter- I get to interview Sadhguru. And, you know, those are those moments. I mean, who gets to do that? You know, it's, I'm so lucky, so fortunate mm-hmm. um, in, in that regard. And yeah, I mean, you know, I think, there is an amazing Wayne Dyer quote. I'm sure I'll butcher it. Um, that was my favorite. That was my my first introduction into self-help really was um, how to win friends and influence people. And then Wayne Dyer books on tape. I mean, I, I just like, I, I went in on the deep end when I, when I discovered Wayne Dyer. So go ahead. Hit me Absolutely. With he, was my Dyer first, quote. he was my first teacher. I met him in 2012. This actually wasn't the quote, but I'll tell you what he said to me. And um, I was a little bit nervous, and I'm not that nervous um, generally, but you know, I approached him and he has, he's a kind of a bear of a guy. You know, he uh-huh. passed away, obviously, but he had these big hands. And I have quite like little delicate piano hands. And he took and it sort of enveloped me. Uh-huh. In that his voice. Hands. In his hands. And yeah, and he said, Jeff, stay close to the work. That's all he said. He grabbed my hand. He just said, stay close to the work. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting. And it really, and as I got to learn more about Wayne, you know, he would go to a lot of these conferences where there would be all these, you know, spiritual masters and other personal development authors of great repute and New York Times bestsellers. And he would never go to the galas. He would never go to the fancy dinners. He was always just staying close to the work. He was reading. He was in his room writing. Uh, he wasn't, you know, eclipsed by the, the, the temptations of the ego or, you know, et cetera. Cool. But he said this one thing, which is the angels you wish to appear to in your life will appear when they recognize themselves in you. Mm. Um, and uh, I'll say one more time. The, the angels you wish to attract into your life will appear when they recognize themselves in you. And in a way, those two quotes are connected because the closer you stay to the work, really working on yourself, you know, really doing the inner work, really staying committed the the angels the people that you respect the most will then respect you and they will begin just to show up and to be honest at this juncture in my life i don't make a tremendous amount of effort to meet this person or that person Mm -hmm. or whatever i'm just really trying to stay close to the work Mm -hmm. and uh and you know i would say if you can do that um you know it's funny when I moved to LA, uh, I had, I dragged my three daughters kicking and screaming from New York. They were Brooklyn girls, and they just loved Brooklyn. They never wanted to leave Brooklyn, especially my eldest, who's beautiful and uh, pre- uh, precocious and 
very, very smart. And we were arrived in LA and, um, and she was like absolutely convinced that she would land in LA and she would immediately be as famous as Kim Kardashian. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, dad, I just don't understand it. You know, like, why is my Instagram following like X or Y or something like that? And, and then I said to her, I was like, you know, the fame comes after. And she's like, after what, dad? And I'm like, well, after you're actually good at something. And, she, and I was like, and then she thought about it. She's like, well, what's Kim Kardashian good at? And I was like, yeah, shit, yeah. you got me. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I that think, was a tough one, dad. <laughs> but the, I think the, the ultimate lesson is that, you know, I think um, that being respected by the people that you respect Mm-hmm. It is way more fulfilling than you know twenty million Instagram followers, and so mm-hmm. um, you know I would just say like you know the, those angels will appear. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, good. Uh, no better way than than to wrap up with some um, personal Wayne Dyer wisdom. So yeah, it was we'll his pa- birthday two days ago. I think three, I two saw or three days that. Ago. I still yeah. follow his daughters and. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeff, thank you so much for taking this time. I know we've taken more than we expected, but your story is rich and I could kind of continue to go down any number of holes with you that we we didn't go down and and we'll do that as friends and maybe again with a, another red blinking light someday, but um it, it's a wonderful story. I'm honored to to be a friend. And to um, you know, have an opportunity to hear your full story today and share it with our audience. And um, I'll be uh, coming out your way this summer. Your your retreat, your your space in Topanga is is a beautiful one. So hopefully, we'll get to hang a little bit more here soon. And um, yeah, thank you, thank you for taking the time and for doing what you're doing. Yeah, Brett, thank you. I think you're just doing great work. I'm a big admirer and lucky to have you as a friend. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.